so I made up a new joke, uh, or at least a new bit, and that is I tell people I'm gaslighting them as I gaslight them. Um, so this is the 100. This is the 100th episode special. Um, and this is the 100th episode, you not the 97th. Yeah. We're definitely, we're definitely releasing this as our 100th episode. Yeah, this isn't the 97th episode. This isn't the 98th episode. This is the 100th episode. It will this be numbered not, 100th not episode. Even, this is not even the 99th episode, folks. No, this and when you, when you scroll through, when you scroll through and you see 198, 99, 101, you're imagining it. Yeah, that's not real. That's not real. We're gaslighting you. Your your Spotify must have glitched out or something. We're you're being gaslighted by us here. Yeah. Um, so, I like, oh, go ahead. I, I just think that we should like make this less of a good experience for the listeners. Like, I think we need to make it like a, a more harsh listening experience, and and I think that extends to like you know being on our Twitter. We need to make it like less hospitable. We shouldn't like we should. We should sign off, not even like in an edgy like, oh, like fuck you. It's just like, yeah, I don't care if you're listening to this or not. Like, go away. This is sort of like how some people listen to Red Scare because they've got like this weird Freudian complex towards the girls who bullied them in high school. Or like how some guys listen to Come Town so that they can be on the other side of of male middle school bullying. Yeah, that's that's what we'll, that's what we should do. This is just, this is just having to like academics condescend to you for 45 minutes academics that, very loose terms by the way yeah well th but that's the thing like when it's obvious that the person doesn't really know what they're talking about right but yeah just know a lot of you know they Wait, use words so like which, we already got like um masochism and like mommy or whatever but then which result on the dsm test um like this is like this podcast this is like an imposter syndrome podcast. If you believe that like you don't actually deserve all the things that you have, um, you listen to this and then it's like, oh yeah, I really don't. This is role play. <laughs> okay, so welcome back, folks. It's your Juno. I was going to say for the week, but it's, we just had a two-week hiatus. We had, uh, yeah. We, after we, a previous two-week hiatus, but you know. Holding ourselves accountable right holding now. Holding ourselves accountable. Um, and we're bringing you a 100th anniversary, 100th anniversary, 100th episode special. Uh, for our 50th, yeah, so, we did a debate. Uh, we talked about the idea of military funding, uh, where I defended... I got, I got rinsed a little bit in the debate, but I still maintain that I'm right. Oh, well, fair enough. Although I do clearly remember you at the end saying that I had even you convinced. Yeah, well, you know what? I remember um, that. That's not true. Yeah, actually. That's yeah not okay. True. I mean, fair enough. You're gaslighting me. I get yeah, it. That's not true. Um, no, don't. You're gaslighting me by telling me that I'm misremembering things. So, so um, yeah, uh, we're doing a hundredth. We've got an even more rancid debate topic for you today. Uh, we're bringing back our, our friend and my debate partner, Jalila, to moderate between Declan and I. Uh, and for those of you who are like, wait a second, you have a debate partner, so you do debate? Yes, I do have a little bit of an advantage here, but we've given Declan, A, the easier side of the debate, and B, uh, the choice of whether he's speaking first or second. He's yeah, second. I... I it, to put this in terms that the other half of our listener base will understand, I they basically gave me the coin toss in exchange for them getting like a good coach. Yeah, exactly. So I think it's pretty balanced. Um, so what we're what are we debating today, Declan? We are going to be debating whether or not Canada should become a republic or remain a monarch, a constitutional monarchy, specifically as socialists. 
or at least maybe that's just the case. I'm going to run. There's a little bit of a leak the, for you. If, if you want to, if you want to put it in debate terms, um, this house believes that Canada should remain a constitutional monarchy. Um, wow. In debate terms, but good job. Good like, job. One of, good my, job. One, of my, one of my friends at Queens is really into, uh, Oh, bleep that, um, is really into debating. And so he's trying to like get everyone <laughs> into debate club. Um, but, Tell me his yeah, name. I'll whoop him. About that person later. Later. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Not on. Not on air. Not on air. We won't expose them. All right. Uh, yeah. I'll believe. I'll believe how the university you go to. Um. So. Yeah. So yeah, as I said, uh, reintroducing our friend Jalila to moderate this debate for us. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what the format's going to be? Hey. Yeah. So. Um. Essentially, we're going to do one five-minute speech each, alternating. Um, and then we're going to do a second five-minute speech each, and after that, I will ask you some questions. You'll have about three minutes each to respond to those. Then uh, closing statements, and yeah, all very simple. All right. Uh, well, then I invite you to get it going. Awesome. In that case, I believe uh, Malcolm is defending the motion today, so... Uh, I hereby uh, invite Malcolm to give an address on five minutes. Hell yeah. All right. So uh, I will count you in. Uh, just so you make sure I stay to my five minutes, but I promise you that I will. Um, so I will start in three, two, one. So I just want to note before this debate starts that this idea that socialists can support monarchy is not out of the ordinary. Right? Plenty of famous and effective socialists like Clement Attlee, Harold Wilson, George Orwell, Tommy Douglas, Alex Salmon, Jeremy Corbyn, I mean, Maurice Bishop, Christopher Hornswind, Johann Nigersvold, and Jonas Stuhr have supported monarchy. Of course, many of these specifically supported the monarch who I will be defending today, Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. So I'm going to start with some framing before I get into the actual... Um, gist of the argument which will come in two forms. I want to talk about things that I do not need to defend and then things I will need to bite. Uh, firstly, I do not just need to defend the exorbitant wealth of the monarchy, right? Because unless that you can prove, Declan, that being ultra-wealthy is an intrinsic part of being a monarch uh, that cannot be divorced from it, I do not have to defend being rich. Um, beyond that, even if you can, their wealth is not our problem as they reside in the UK, and even if they did live here, they would be very well privy to the same wealth redistribution programs as any other Canadian. Feel free to argue that one, but I, you know, I don't think it really stands. Uh, second, I don't need to defend monarchy under Marxism, right? There have been several states claiming to be Marxist as constitutional monarchies, like Granada and Cambodia, and I accept that the two, but I do accept that the two are incompatible. But again, unless that you can prove that some form of Marxism is the only viable political path to uh, sort of big tent socialism in Canada, I again suggest that you not stick to an unrealistic goal. So yeah, if you want to engage in these points, I will gladly do so and demolish them. Uh, the things I do need to bite, though, uh, I need to bite the idea of unelected political power uh, and these sort of inc incredible reserve powers that are given uh, hereditarily. I also need to bite the sort of, you know, maintenance of the monarchy, the travel costs, whatever. Uh, and then there are some things that I think that Declan needs to contend with as well. Uh, mainly the substantive cost of becoming a republic, both in the one-time cost and the ongoing cost of elections. Um, which, of course, is higher than the cost that Canada pays for our monarchy, which is nothing. And second, he needs to contend with the apathy of Canadians. I don't need to defend this as I'm defending the status quo. In fact, presenting a case that says we should work to lower it. Uh, he also needs to uh, talk about the constitutional difficulties, or at least defend, uh, going through the constitutional difficulties of becoming a republic, and explain to uh, me, and of course explain to Jalila, why this is worth it. 
So on to my case. What are our key goals as socialists? Well, we want economic reform and we want the stability of the nation as it carries out these reforms, right? So economic reform first. In order to democratize the economy, we require political mobilization that is on a scale that is hitherto unseen in the history of democracy. Our nation would require, you know, absolute suffrage, total participation of all adult citizens in both government elections, but also elections and referenda for economic positions uh, and policies. And elections are pretty exhausting, right? Like perpetual elections, uh, we've seen that perpetual elections lead to polarization and instability, um, like in America. And so it's better to, in the sort of tried and tested British tradition that we uphold in Canada, hand over the largest amount possible of the government to bureaucracy and civil service. This works. So to remove one election for a ceremonial position, a largely ceremonial position, not only depoliticizes society, which is sort of by its nature highly political, but it also, this is critical, depoliticizes the position as a whole, right? If there are no campaigns for the head of state and no elections for the head of the head of state, then the national symbol becomes a symbol of unity rather than a symbol of partisanship, as an elected president would be. So especially if the monarchy can be linked to the existence of socialism, like Norway's King Hakon or the King of Cambodia before the American coup against him, right? And uh, a bit of analysis here, an elected head of state is actually, to, in, to an extent, anti-populist, right? Because obviously they'll represent some citizens of your nation, but not all of them. If you're lucky, majority. If you're unlucky, a plurality. Just the people who voted for them. On my side, a monarch represents everybody. On Declan's, uh, the head of state represents a fraction. Um, and so if nobody gets to choose and nobody's really disappointed by the choice, if people understand this is who we get, you can't be disappointed when you get them because there was never any other option. I know that there's no other option for Her Majesty. I know for the rest of my life, the heads of state are going to be Prince Charles, William, and then George. This is what I mean when I say it depoliticizes society. The second the head of state starts becoming elected, they stop being a head of state and start really becoming a head of government. They start thinking about re-election, who makes successor. They might start making decisions based on what will be popular rather than what is right. And a monarch does not have to worry about these things. Uh, so ironically enough, it's actually far more democratic. So this idea of patriotism, I'll do a little bit of analysis on, right? Like we believe that a socialist nation, or I believe that a socialist nation is always going to be under assault by the forces of reaction, uh, be they internal or external, and uh, needs to be unified and resolute in defending itself or an economic system, especially Canada, first among world nations, among first world nations, uh, and neighbor to perhaps the greatest force of reaction in human history, right? Canada will become under psychological assault uh, and it's easier to devote yourself to a person than a sort of broad-ranging set of policies. And so if you can say, God save the king, rather than for the glory of our economic system, uh, it is easier to sort of unify the people behind the system. And so for all these reasons, I'm very proud to oppose. Thank you. Propose. Lovely. Thank you, Malcolm. Can I invite Declan to interest in five minutes in response? I don't think I really... I don't necessarily need to engage with all of Malcolm's points. At this point, we can deal with that in the rebuttals. But what I will say is that I, I find it hard, I find it interesting that he's, or that they are specifically zeroing in on the British monarchy as an example of a positive monarchy. When throughout history, the, the peace that was held together by monarchies has not been a positive peace. It has not been a peace where people are working together. Largely, it has... Throughout history, monarchies have served to uphold reaction and to maintain, you know, when it when it became obvious that the divine right of kings could not could not remain, bourgeois um, bourgeois revolutionaries were, you know, keeping the king as the head of state in order to cement their power and sort of 
allow themselves to maintain an old symbol of legitimacy. And well, it may be true that monarchy is a, is a form of unity. You know, it, it unites the people. Um, this is not exclusive to a monarchy. You don't need a monarch to unite uh, a people underneath a banner, um, such as the case of Juan Peron, um, or any any other sort of South American, Latin American populist leader that you want to to look at a case study of. Um, we're democratically elected, and it, you don't need a monarch to maintain a sort of national unity. And now on. For the, the case for Republican for being a republic is that no you, your systems cannot be changed on a whim, right? If we're if we're going to be discussing constitutional monarchy, it may be a British tradition and a custom of British traditional constitutional monarchy that you know if if a if a law makes it to the head of state that they will make it law, but that does not mean that they don't have the power to say no. And I believe that that is a position that no no single person in a supposedly socialist state should have the ability to unilaterally say no to passing legislation. And I believe that a republic is the best way to oppose a sort of unilateral say, of saying no, of turning down any sort of, whether you want to discuss economic reform, whether you want to discuss, you know, social equality, you can't just tr you can't trust that the monarch in power is going to agree with you ideologically 100% of the time. Now, with regards to the the overwhelming wealth of a monarch, of course the head of state is going to put themselves in a position where they are, you know, unassailable and it, you know, that includes at this point in history accumulating enough capital that they cannot move that they cannot be easily removed. So I, I think it is difficult to divorce, and I would challenge that it is difficult to divorce the monarchy from state wealth and from overall, I don't want to say skimming the wealth because it is theirs as the head of state, but from the the power that comes with leading the economy of a large nation. I think with that, I'm going to conclude my introductory remarks. So I think in that case, we're going to move on to our second round of uh, So I invite Malcolm back up to give an address not exceeding five minutes in response to that. All right. Well, I will start in three, two, one. So I'll first I'll do some sort of refutation rebuilding, and then I want to analyze uh, because I think that I need to at this point, um, just in response to some of the things that Declan has said in his excellent first speech. Uh, to analyze a little bit more of this point about sort of national unity. Um, so, first of all, this idea that the British monarchy uh, does not, you know, bring a pause to peace, it legitimizes class structures, uh, or at the very least, any monarchy does. Uh, this may well be true, uh, but again, uh, you know, I, I think that, sure, if we're moving towards a stateless, classless society, then yeah, it's it's not compatible, but uh, I mean, really, I don't think that that is a, a realistic goal for any country, not only in the first world, but anywhere in the world to, to sort of undertake. Uh, I think that it is a much wider issue than this debate, and I think that what is realistically achievable in Canada uh, in the shorter medium term 
has nothing to do with uh, sort of completely abolishing not just economic inequality, but the, the very idea of class. Um, but again, I'm willing to engage on that one more if you want to in your second speech, Declan. Uh, but secondly, I want to talk about this idea that you don't need a monarch for national unity, and then I'm going to return after my sort of more explicit reputation uh, to this in, in a bit more analysis um, of, of my first speech. So first of all, uh, Latin American populist leaders, you specifically bring up Juan Perón. Uh, I don't want to just sort of trade facts here, but I, I do want to note that Juan Perón was a great example of a guy who was a unifying figure and had political power. Uh, and everybody loved him across the political spectrum, and that let him do uh, vaguely left-wing sometimes and kind of nationalist reforms. I want to note that Juan Perón, at a certain point, because he was a political figure, had to choose between which side he was going to take and ended up massacring all of his socialist supporters. Um, like I, I, Because if you are a political figure as the one who is adored, like you can't be somebody who works to enact a partisan political agenda and uh, be loved by uh, or be respected or supported by a nonpartisan group in the long term. It just doesn't work. Um, you have to be political or you have to be nonpartisan. Uh, you cannot be both. Um, this idea about wealth, um, again, like you, you bring up this point that, you know, monarchs are going to be wealthy because they're sort of at the forefront of the state apparatus, but you don't tell me why they have to be. You don't tell me why, uh, you know, any sort of wealth redistribution taking away the $300 million uh, would, or 300 million pounds, would, uh, you know, cripple their abilities as monarchs to govern and require, you know, a republic to be declared in order to do wealth redistribution. There's not really much analysis on this point whatsoever beyond saying that they are wealthy and the ways in which they have been wealthy. Uh, and so, uh, Julia, I don't think you really have to listen to that that point. Um, second, also this idea that the monarch can say no, uh, so can a president, that's the whole point. Uh, I really like uh, Declan to defend an appointed by government or an elected head of state who can say no because that's what all head of states do, rather than just saying nobody should be able to do that, this because checks and balances are important and prevent the tyranny of the majority or the elected over the minority. Uh, it's always important to have a defender of the constitution in that regard. So on to some analysis about unity. Um, which is also has some, uh, as I mentioned, kind of implicit uh, clash with, with some of Jacqueline's points. So yes, Canada will come under psychological assault if it undertakes left-wing reforms. Um, and the tools of our defenses will either be building up support for an ideology or building up support for an ideology and a figurehead, right? At the Battle of Arnhem, British and Canadian soldiers who were encircled by, you know, this brutal German enemy never radioed out of ammunition, God save Prime Minister Winston Churchill. They said out of ammunition, God save the king. Right? Like, it's easier to unite around devotion to a person than devotion to an idea. And if we can intrinsically sort of link the two, Canada can devote itself to left wing economic reforms and social reforms and defending itself with this sort of Peronist or Stalinist fervor uh, without the drawbacks that I've mentioned that come with worshipping a dictator. Right? Like, naturally, it's bad when a cult of personality is around someone with actual serious political power. But if you can get that cult of personality around someone with no real power, then you can have a unifying force to bolster your nation against threats to it, right? So if, in Declan's best case, why do they devote themselves to an ideology without a figurehead? We can see examples of this in, like, the United States, with these ideals of liberty and freedom being carried abroad in imperial ventures, right? Anything can be justified in the name of utopia, and the sort of governing principle uh, 
to be achievement of a utopia instead of just a democracy created in the name of a monarch. Democratic backsliding and terrible atrocities can easily be justified. Uh, and so, yeah, for all these reasons, Crouch pros, thank you. I thank Malcolm for those remarks. I now invite Declan to address the exceeding five minutes. All right, well, first, um, you know, thank you, Malcolm, for your rebuttal. Um, and I, I just think that a D, so a monarchy is not legit, monarchy is not explicitly a legitimizing force. I, I, it doesn't, it doesn't legitimize. I, let, let me, re, let me restate. Imperial ventures have been carried out in the name of liberty, in the name of democracy, in recent history. And I would invite anyone listening to think prior to those imperial ventures being carried out, what were they carried out in the name of? There is, a again, a specific phrase that is brought up a lot, king and country. And if you're going to bring up the fact that the values of liberty, democracy, whatever American buzzwords you want to throw in that were justify the war in Iraq, are you also going to justify king and country being used for the starvation of over a million Bengalis in India? I, we can go back and forth all day debating whether or not imperial ventures are better when they're carried out for a king versus for abstract values. But at the end of the day, it is, it is much more secure to codify the checks and balances through a constitution rather than leaving the the checks and balances basically up to tradition of, oh, well, traditionally speaking, a, a constitutional monarch allows these things to happen and allows them to pass. It is much easier when you have a ch checks and balances on your head of state that mean that they are not in power forever. And I, I, I just think that that is a, a key point that I, I, I clock that Malcolm is very keen to sort of move past because codifying your checks and balances and making them into law out, outside of the context of a constitutional monarchy and ensuring that it is at the very least a different person saying no, one that can be, for example, democratically elected, as opposed to someone who essentially serves for life in a position where they hypothetically could strike down any sort of actual social reform as if the people got unlucky with who assumed power after our beloved Queen Elizabeth II, were to, if, if she were to pass. Um, and so I just think that, you know, it's interesting that imperial ventures were brought up, partially because imperialism is not exclusive to republicanism, nor is it exclusive to monarchy. I think it is, it, it's its own phenomena. But I do believe that throughout the course of history, much more imperialism has been carried out in the name of expanding the reign of, of the monarch and in the monarch's name versus it is only a very recent phenomena that imperial ventures were carried out for not for a person but for an abstract sort of idea um and i i just i, I think that britain and america is not the only power struggle i i don't think that if canada were to start passing social reforms that it would be Automat that America would automatically begin attacking us. Um, I, I believe that in this era of sort of internationalization, any sort of true action against uh, Canadian social reforms, especially with the backing, if, if Canada were to become a republic um, and, and sort of maintain its alliances, because again, the alliances that 
Canada has with Britain and with the and with you know, the rest of Europe are not necessarily tied to the fact that the monarch is the head of state. So I believe that it is entirely possible for Canada to become a republic and maintain its internet its international status separate from the rule of Britain and yet maintaining friendly relations. Thank you. All right, some very interesting opening remarks. I will say, Declan, I think you've upped your game a lot uh, since the last debate that I moderated between you guys. I agree. Um, After work, for so, a lot more. Mm -hmm. um, indeed. I guess we can go reverse order since Malcolm's gotten to speak first um, throughout the opening speeches. So, first question then is for Declan. And I think that. The first question I want to ask kind of has to do with what impact this has on us. You've mentioned that um, it's not a good idea to have someone in a position of power where they could theoretically strike down anything. How, how likely do you think that is to happen? And if you don't think it's likely, then what is the actual tangible harm to having a monarch in charge of the country? I'll set a timer for three minutes. You don't need to use all of it, though. So. I think, you know, thank you for the question. And I think that I, um, Malcolm is uh, waiting with bated breath for me to say that the monarchy is a waste of money. And I, I'm not going to fall for that this time. Um, but I will say that if we're going to bring up atrocities that have been committed, you know, if, if Malcolm is going to bring up the purges of socialists from the, the Peronist government, um, again, we can go back and think of, what that sort of unifying force can be used for. I, I generally, I don't think that polarization of a, of a nation is inherently a bad thing. I think it is part of a sort of, I don't want to, you know, use broad Marxist terms here, but struggle between groups in, in a society is what is what creates society. And I don't think that necessarily a unifying force around the values that the British crown embody, which, you know, included, for example, genocide in India. Um, you you can you can run you can run through a list of British atrocities that were all committed with these same sort of values. So I think what what Malcolm is trying to argue for is something that the British crown. And in, in terms of supporting a sort of social reforms, where I don't think that, historically speaking, the British crown has ever truly, um, you know, been a, a unifying figure in favor of that. I mean, the best that you could say was in World War Two. you know, of course, for, for king and country. But to answer your question, I think the tangible harm of a monarch is that the the unity that that is put together by a monarch can be channeled um, as, you know, for example, and I, I just, I think that to answer your question, the unifying force of a monarch can be used by political, like can be used by political actors, even if it's not necessarily the head of state that is politicizing the position can be used for political gain. And I, I think that, that problem is ameliorated where the head of state does not change, or sorry, where the head of state does change under constitutional set 
of checks and balances. Thank you. Really interesting response. So I think in lieu of uh, in lieu in lieu, I'm not sure how to pronounce that word uh, of response speeches right now. I'll ask Malcolm a similar uh, question along those lines in order to give them a chance to engage. So Malcolm, I think you provided a pretty reasonable case forwarding the idea that monarchs are more unifying than other elected officials. I have to say I'm pretty convinced on that. What I think Declan has been trying to push, though, and what I don't think you've really responded to as yet, is um, the question of why a monarch is inherently more unifying not just than another political figure, but then any concept in general. Like, why is unity something that we can only get under a monarch? And why is that unity better than other forms of unity we can get? So I just want to, I will answer your question. I want to start off by saying uh, in my answer, uh, congratulating Declan here. Uh, he's really shaping out to be a great politician. Uh, he was asked, you know, a question and answered a completely different one. He did a full Trudeau which I'm really proud of and, you know, didn't even engage with my frame. Uh, so I, I just want to, to, to note that um, I will engage here. Um, I want to say that, you know, throughout history, Declan himself admits that terrible things have been done in the name of monarchs. He also admits that great things have been done in the name of monarchs. Um, and sort of throughout all of that, those have been governed by what political system has uh, sort of led the country, be it a uh, imperialist political system, a normal liberal one, whatever. And so I think that um, it's this is because it is easier to, I forgot to set a timer, by the way, so just cut me off and I'm done. Um, it's easier to devote yourself to a person uh, than an abstract, right? Like if you are, if you can link a person to that abstract, it's even better. But, you know, if you're going to ask a soldier, uh, what are you going to die for? The soldier is more likely to say, my family or my country or the king than 40% uh, of workplaces ha should be owned by their employees. Right? Because people are simple and ideas are complex. And if you can link the idea and the maintenance of the idea, and people like that, if people like that idea to a person, then they will devote themselves to that person. And I think that there's not really much risk, because I just want to pre-bought this, of that going out the window in a, a democratic society, right? We can look at monarchs who said no in Romania, Bulgaria, and Portugal. I just want to know that all of those countries are now republics, because under a constitutional system, our you know, status quo in Canada, where we have a constitution, the monarch is still beholden to an elected government. And so their role, their role is to be unifying. And they can also put more energy into purely being a unifying figure uh, and not sort of interfering with the government than a, what a government has to do, which is to objectively be partisan and isolate a certain amount of society. I figure I'm almost out of time. So uh, I'll just finish there. Awesome. So I'll give you guys uh, like a minute or so to respond directly to each other. I think uh, the debate has been incredibly polite, so um, I'll step in if you get a little bit too rowdy. But uh, for the next few minutes, we'll have an open floor just to like 
you know, deal with all the stuff that uh, was just coming. Well, Declan, I'll let you ask first since I just went. Well, I think I think right off the bat, um, you say that it's harder to sell people on an idea. Um, if that was the case, why is fighting for freedom and defending democracy such prominent um, pieces of propaganda for joining the U.S. military? Surely, if it was harder to sell these people on that idea, the U.S. would not have the largest standing military, even relative to it. Well, not relative to its population, because if we want to talk about Israel, but that's not the debate we're having right now. Um, but why does it have such a large standing military relative to its population if we, if we fight for freedom is harder to sell people on? Why does why does Britain have a comparatively smaller military? Well, because Britain doesn't have a poverty draft. Like, this is uh, an issue of economics more than an issue of ideology when it comes to America. When I talk about freedom uh, and liberty and democracy and these American concepts, I'm talking about them being used to uh, justify imperial ventures, I actually will bite. I will bite the harm. I will admit that you were right that a king can be used to justify bad things as well. And so in that case, we are equal on that argument, by the way, Jalila, and so it should just be disregarded. But people don't necessarily join up. Uh, people who would fight for their country will join up anyways, and people who wouldn't, would not necessarily join up because uh, of these ideas of freedom and liberty uh, they're joining up because they have to, because it gives them free education, because it gives them, you know, access to to resources, uh, which is just not as much of a problem here in Canada or in the UK. In the wake of, of, for example, if we want to just use a catastrophic event, whether it's 9-11, Pearl Harbor, you know, a, a purported act of war. Mm -hmm. What is the drive for the what is the drive for those people to join up? If if not to defend their institution, which let me remind you, in the United States, did not have an, a a monarch, either yeah. in two thousand one or in nineteen forty one. People are going to defend their country. The Soviets did the same thing on mass. I just think oh. that I'm not saying that. Uh, can I just finish? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'll be quick. I'm not saying that you're not going to get ideological mobilization on your side. I'm saying that you're going to get better ideological mobilization on mine. Alrighty. Um, concludes our first open floor. It was it was very polite, honestly, just like the rest. Um, it is a debate about Canada. Yeah. Indeed. Um, all right, we'll go reverse order for the questions this time. Again, please use each, uh, but you don't have to use the entire time by any means. So, Malcolm, you've uh, conceded, or if not conceded, then you know, um, pointed out that. Um, you're both kind of um, split or even on the back and forth on whether or not it is a good thing to have a unifying force like a monarch, given that it could be used for good, could be used for evil, or not really serving. So I'd like you to expand then um, that clash aside on what kind of positive impacts a monarch has on society. Besides just the unification point, do you have anything else on your side? Okay. So I've started my timer. So I think I've talked about, um, you know, this idea of political polarization. And I think that this is more than just sort of unifying. I think we've talked a lot about this idea of, like, the military and war and ideological defense. Um, I also think that I, you know, I mentioned at the beginning that a monarchy is cheaper. I know Declan is saying he's not going to fall for the trap. I don't need to trap him here. I think it's just a fact that, at least in Canada, uh, a, monarch, a monarchy is cheaper. 
uh, and our monarchy is cheaper than the Republic would be. That's an, obviously just an easy thing. Um, and But I also think that, you know, I've mentioned before in this debate this idea that, you know, on principle, a monarchy is more democratic because, uh, you know, just to, to flash out a scenario here, right? Let's say you have an election for president and two people run and one person wins with 60% of the vote. That means 40% of the people, first of all, they have to have platforms and politics get elected, which is not good for an head of state. But second of all, that means that 40% of people uh, are not going to get a figure that they like. Or let's expand even further. Let's say there are three people running for uh, president and one person wins with 35% of the vote uh, in a very close election. That means that 65% of the population, the majority of the population, are going to feel alienated, not just by the choice of person, but the choice of policies for the head of state. This is not the case with a monarchy. A monarchy has no policies because it is constitutional, so it doesn't really have any real power except an emergency, and it's nonpartisan. They don't talk about politics, at least in Canada, which is what we're talking about here, right? And so, you know, and, and then once the monarch is in power, all they think about is doing a good job and, main, and yes, maintaining their popularity, but maintaining their popularity as a nonpartisan figure. Whereas a, a president has to start thinking about re-election or grooming a successor. They have to start thinking about popularity as a partisan figure in terms of platforms that they were elected on. Um, right? Like, they have to worry about not keeping everybody happy, but keeping an electorate happy. And I think that within a democracy, it's important to not have the politics become all-subsuming. I think everyone gets tired of that. I think it has negative effects on society. And so I think a real, very tangible effect, positive effect of a constitutional monarchy, beyond this idea of unity and patriotism, beyond just the money, uh, is this idea that it is just better for uh, a national psyche to not have to worry about one extra political thing. And so uh, I've, I hadn't had the time to say this in my other speeches, but I'll finish this one off with a good God save the Queen. Uh, thank you, proud to propose. Very uh, kind of showing your colors there with the, uh, the closing statement. I like it. All right. Um, the next question then is for Eklund. And I'll do a similar thing and give you a question that lets you kind of respond uh, to the one I asked Malcolm. Um, and I guess I'm just curious then as to kind of how you weigh these impacts against each other. I feel like we've been talking past each other throughout this debate. So I want you to analyze for me or answer for me directly. Why is it that the possible dangers or the harmful associations of a monarch that you've covered in your speeches um, as an impact outweighs the impact of, you know, having this kind of national character or, um, you know, national political unity, if not, uh, I don't know, militaristic unity or whatever it is that uh, Malcolm is discussing. Uh, so you have three minutes. So I'll start your timer now. So I think that with regards to a monarch and that sort of unifying force that Malcolm has been talking about, um, it out having a monarch outweigh the negative effects of having a monarch outweighs um the positive effects if you know if we're going to accept not that unity is inherently positive but say that unity is 
something that happens under a monarch. Um, because at the end of the day, I don't think that political unity is always a positive thing. And so it, it seems like a, a republic can foster... I, I, I believe that a republic is better able to foster a genuine conversation when it comes to policy. Um, and interesting that Malcolm said grooming a successor. Um, I'm not arguing in favor of term limits here. I think that if the people like someone, they should be able to keep running. Um, and I think with Malcolm bringing up the point of pleasing an electorate as a strike against being a republic, I don't believe that a, uh, a monarch would not serve that point, would not serve that any less. They would just serve whoever's in power, when it, politically speaking. But in any case, um, circling back to your question, um, the, tr the trials and tribulations of having to establish a, a republic in Canada would be worth it partially because it would provide Canada with our own sort of unity, uh, again, being separate from Britain and being our own country that you know, doesn't have to tag along with Britain when it comes to military operations, when, when it comes to our head of state essentially never or barely ever setting foot in our country and us still being ruled. I think that it is a sort of relationship of submission that I think establishing a republic would get rid of. And I, hold, I would hold that that is a, a positive force that outweighs the unifying effect of the monarch, putting aside the monarch in the abstract, not discussing the specific implications of the British crown or of Queen Elizabeth II. Um, I hope I've answered that question to your satisfaction. Awesome. And I guess for continuity, we'll do one more two-minute question period, and then we'll go on to uh, closing off the debate. Would you mind if I started this one, Declan? Go for it. So I just want to first note that a lot of the issues in your second speech there would simply be solved by having a Canadian monarch and not a republic. Uh, but I want to ask you specifically, why is trying to please the fraction of the electorate who voted for you exactly the same, or even better on your side, than trying to please sort of the entire populace uh, non in a nonpartisan manner online? Because realistically speaking, that the the people that the monarch has to please is significantly less than those who an, who an elected politician would have to please. So how is I, how? I would I would hold that because in general they don't have to truly make things better for that that population. They only have to make things better for whoever's at, at the actual level of power if as you know you would argue we're going to have a head of state that is sort of divorced from politics and it's just you know as you said there is a head of state um i think that in order to to have that work that monarch needs to keep only those in power happy whereas an elected politician that is the head of state needs to keep you know depending on the electoral system we'll say yeah 60 percent of the populace happy as opposed to say the 10 percent that's would actually have any sort of institutional power to change anything. But the the interest of an elected government and what keeps them happy is being re-elected. And so it's therefore the interest of the populace, even accepting your point, which I don't, because I think that if a monarchy is very unpopular, then people will elect Republican politicians. 
I, I, I just don't buy that a monarchy only has to keep the current government happy. Uh, because their interests are also in being popular. That's how they govern. Or not govern, but that's how they sort of do their work. Uh, and so either by you know, the sort of indirect route of yours or a more direct route that I'm proposing, no matter which you buy, Julila, I think that on my side, I win. Interesting stuff. And I think we're ready to move on to closing statements now. Um, so I guess since uh, Malcolm started off the opening statement, um, we will let them finish the closing statement meaning that Declan, uh, you can go first. I invite you to give an address not exceeding a two, four minutes, slightly shorten it down, but I won't be too done with it. Okay. All right, I will start in three, two, one. So I, I hope here that I've outlined um, the reasons why that the reasons why Canada should not remain a constitutional monarchy. Um, the argument that Malcolm made with regards to maintaining a national unity is a moot point. It, it does not, it is not inherent in a monarch, nor is it necessarily a, a force that must be protected. Um, and codifying your checks and balances to ensure that your head of state is actually representing the will of the people as opposed to a head of state that is in a position to, on whatever whim that they feel, um, and Malcolm would argue that they're forced to keep the general populace happy. We disagree on that point. Um, I believe that a codified checks and balances on an elected official ensures that that elected official will keep a majority of people happier compared to a monarch that only has to serve the interests of power. And I also believe that the the point about sort of people's apathy towards politics is I wouldn't blame that on republicanism more as I would blame it on other sort of factors that alienate people from voting. Um, I, I think that when it really comes down to it, democratization and republicanism is a is a more a more substantial force for positive social change when compared to a force of a monarchy, whether we're speaking historically or just hypothetically. Um, and I would, I would also hold that a monarchy um, prevents, or it can prevent positive social change that, that would otherwise have passed with a leader that was elected um, with, the, with the intent of serving a representative portion of the people. Um, and I think besides that, um, Malcolm, this has been a fun debate. Um, definitely nice getting my brain working again. Um, and thank you, Jalila, for moderating. Lovely. I know that Malcolm is an address on exceeding four minutes. Close off the state. Great. Thank you very much. I'll count you in again. I'm going to start in three, two, one. So I just want to start, uh, Actually, I'll start. I'll start by saying, yeah, thank you, Declan, as well. I really enjoyed this one. Uh, and to reiterate, you improved so much, and so I think that there's a good shot you win this one. And so I'm just glad for you. Um, but I want to go over uh, to sort of seal the deal here. Uh, disregard what I just said. I think it's obvious that I've won this debate. 
Um, but I want to, so I want to go over my framing because the very first thing that was said in the, the debate, which, uh, was not sort of engaged with at all. So I think you have to sort of accept are the points, uh, on which either I would win the debate or Declan would win the debate. Um, so, uh, yes, uh, Declan sort of seems to accept that I didn't need to defend their exorbitant wealth or Marxism, uh, which I, I, I appreciate, but, uh, specifically, I mentioned things that Declan would have to defend uh, in order to win. Uh, the substantive cost of becoming a republic, uh, both in the, sort of the one-time cost I mentioned, the ongoing cost of elections, which he seems to want rather than an appointed president. Uh, didn't address this at all. Uh, and again, this is not something that exists on my side. Um, he sort of briefly touches on political apathy of Canadians, uh, but doesn't touch on the apathy of Canadians towards the monarchy and the idea that you actually have to make people very angry about it in order to get rid of it because it's so hard to, to get rid of with the constitutional difficulties didn't mention that at all so even if you accept that declan's case for a republic is better than my case for a monarchy he has not told you why it is worth it to upset the status quo which i'm defending he has not told you why it is worth it uh to sort of go with his over mine uh and the negatives that that would entail more than just in the meat of her cases but also in the consequences of doing so and so I think that even if you accept that Declan's case is better, I still win this debate because he's not justified why his case is so important. And I don't need to. So uh, what have I talked about? Well, uh, I'd like to start with what I will acknowledge is my weakest point, which is this idea of national unity. I think that um, this is not my weakest point because I argued it weakly. I think it's my weakest point because it's Declan's strongest point. Although I still think I win it. Um, right? Because I've talked about this idea that um, a monarch is a figure that everybody can rally around, uh, more than just in terms of democracy, which I'll talk about in a second, but in terms of socialism or left-wing reforms or whatever coming under assault. Uh, the case you get out of Declan from here is kind of weak, uh, right? This idea that it can be done by a politician, which I have refuted by saying that a politician is inherently partisan, a monarch is inherently nonpartisan. Uh, and so your politicians are supposed to do the dirty work and the monarch can be your sort of unifying figure. But when your unifying figure has to pick a side, then that's a bad thing. I talked about this. We gave plenty of examples. Um, well, I still think I win, although I think this is Declan's strongest point. So if I beat him on this, I still think I win the case. Um, but I, apart from the point about uh, imperialism or whatever, which I think we both acknowledge is a wash, it's equal on both sides. But uh, our point... My point about government, I think, is uh, a stronger point, partially because I don't really get much mechanization or, or really anything from Declan out of this side. Uh, I give you a very detailed analysis of the way in which a constitutional monarch depoliticizes uh, an important part of society, uh, the way in which reserve powers should not be necessarily handed over to a partisan figure, uh, and the way in which a monarchy is inherently going to be far less, even if it's somewhat partisan, which uh, wasn't talked about at all, but it's going to be far less, if not apolitical, uh, completely. Um, and because basically the case comes down to this idea of appealing to some versus appealing to all, uh, which all is inherently stronger, and therefore I win. God save the queen. Thank you very much. Wow, that was also a very cool finishing speech. Thank you so much to both of you for the debate. Uh, last time, I don't think we did an on-air verdict. Uh, we did. Declan kind of conceded. Yeah, Declan uh, conceded, and then you agreed, yeah. but yeah. We need to, we need to stop <laughs> the steal this time. 
Um, yeah. So in terms of my verdict here, I got to be honest with you. I think that this is um, a somewhat low impact debate. So it's one that can really go either way, yeah. uh, depending on like how it's argued. I'd say for today, I um, probably, my initial call would be for the opposition. So I would give this to Declan, purely on the fact that I don't understand how any of the proposition benefits are mutually exclusive to that side. Although Malcolm, I think, did a fairly good job of making headway on that. I think at the end of the day, it's still largely unresolved um, as to why it is that uh, a monarch is more unifying. It kind of rests on this assertion that a person is an easier thing to care about than a concept, which wasn't really mechanized. Uh, we got an illustration regarding whether a soldier would want to die for their family or, you know, employment regulations, but we never really got any analysis to show that this is true all of the time, like for some structural reason. And given that, I think that Declan did do a decent enough job of showing that there are some exclusive harms to having a monarchy, having that kind of figure in place. Um, beyond just the cost, which, you know, I'm, I'm kind of glad that that wasn't a major contention point. Um, yeah. So, I think it is, though, generally adjudicating debates. You take about, like, 15 minutes or so to, like, come up with an actual call and justification. Um, yeah, that would be my kind of, like, rough take on the round, I'd say. Can I be your panelist in adjudication so I can uh, tell you what I think of the round? This is, this is the equivalent of, like, me getting Malcolm into Checkmate at 4 when their, like, chess.com ELO is something like 1,400 and mine's, like, 600. Yeah. that there. This is yeah. me, this is me putting agree, no, no, fair enough. Like, no, I think that, um, I actually, I disagree with the call. I, I do think I won the debate, but I think that it was close enough that I can't be mad about it. Um, I'm not going to argue with you. This is, we're going to, this is going to be, it's going to be the next, Malcolm. like, call, it's going to be the next call her daddy, where it's, this debate caused the split, and there's yeah. going to be running Juno as a solo <laughs> show. Nah, no, I think that it, like, I could be wrong, right? Like, that's the thing, it was very close, I think you did a fantastic job, Declan, and so, if I think about this more later, after we're off air, and I think, no, actually, you did one, I just want to win, I say, I think, congratulations for that, and I never, think that... You will, ne you will never admit that you lost, are you kidding me? No, I will never, no, I never will, I'll never, that's why I'm saying it now, when I actually think that I very narrowly, very narrowly took the case, um, but, uh, I, again, I think that it's, it's very well within the realm of possibilities, uh, that I am wrong about this. You know, it's always, uh, good to kind of have a healthy amount of skepticism on your call, which is why I said to, like, you know, with a longer deliberation, I might have arrived at a different decision. Yeah. Um, I think it's, I think it's a good way to live your life, you know, kind of. Like always be on your toes. Always be. You heard it here first, folks. Decisions. Be a centrist. Yep. <laughs> be a centrist. Support socialism and a constitutional monarchy. That's like um, forty centrism for sure. Yeah, for sure, for sure. <laughs> All right. Well. Um, I think next week we're going to have an episode for all of you about... We're going to have, we're going to have an interesting sort of deep dive. Um, Speaking of monarchies, we're having an episode about a cult. Yeah. So Ooh. I think uh, until then, I've been Declan. I've been Malcolm. I've been Jalila. And this has been your Juno. Hell yeah. This has been your Juno. Right. Thank you.